Hello and welcome to the Divine Renovation Podcast, where we seek to inspire and equip you to move your parish from maintenance to mission. My name's Dan O'Rourke, and in studio today, I've got a couple of my friends. I got Rob McDowell, Divine Renovation Coach. Good to see you, Rob. It's great to be here, Dan. Ah, it's really nice to see you, man. And I've got one of my good buddies and my pastor, Father Simon Lobo. Good to see you, Father Simon. Hey, thanks, Dan. Great to be here. Oh, thanks for being along with us. Now, guys, today we have a a special guest joining us, Uh, and I'm really excited because I know that a number of our team uh, here at Divine Renovation are, are, are big fans of Alexander. Leadership is a topic that is very important to us here at Divine Renovation. And Alexander Havard has written several books on the subject of authentic and virtuous leadership. He's also the founder of the Virtuous Leadership System, the co-founder of the Virtuous Leadership Institute in North America. He teaches virtuous leadership internationally and founded a network of virtuous leadership institutes around the world. So Alexander, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me to talk to you. Oh, well, it's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure. Now, Alex, I, I need you to help me understand. What is virtuous leadership? Virtuous leadership is the idea that leadership cannot be separated from virtue, that leadership is not a technical activity. A true leadership has to do with, uh, with real virtues, with uh, powers that uh, we use in order to do great things, in order to serve the others. So I'm used to, to speak about virtuous leadership and not just leadership because there are more than 50 definitions of what leadership is about. Mm. So I wanted people to be sure that we, about what we were speaking. So I added the concept of virtuous leadership, although I'm convinced that leadership by itself has to do with, with virtue. But it was necessary to, to put the emphasis on virtue in order that people understand that we're going to speak about character, leadership being something that has to do with character. You know, for me, uh, leadership is about achieving greatness by bringing out the greatness in others. But you do this through virtues. You cannot do this uh, through techniques. It is something that has to do with the virtue of magnanimity, virtue of greatness, and the virtue of humility, which is the virtue of service. If you, if you want to achieve greatness by bringing out greatness in others, then you better have a vision of greatness you have to practice greatness and you have to serve others with greatness. So you have to have both virtues of magnanimity and humility. So that is why we call this virtuous leadership. Uh, we don't want people to think that it is that leadership is something technical. There's so much I want to unpack on, on what you just said. I know here at Divine Renovation, we always talk about leadership being the gift that unleashes other gifts. But, but help me understand, um, what got you into this field? What made you start caring, Alex, about, about leadership in general? What was the draw? Well, I was, uh, I was a lawyer. I was working, uh, I am from France, but I left France when I was 27. I worked as a barrister in Paris and Strasbourg, and then I worked in Helsinki, Finland. So I spent 18 years in my, my life in Finland. <clears throat> when I was in Finland, I was uh, teaching a course on history of European integration. So I was speaking a lot to my students about the founders of European Union. Alcide de Gasperi, Conrad Adenauer, Jean Monnet, Robert Schumann. These were incredible people. And my students used to ask me very interesting questions about the human beings. How do you become such a person? Uh, what's the difference between a temperament and a character? What's a virtue? What's the difference between a virtue and a value? They were asking me very interesting things, very practical. And because I had education in philosophy, one day I decided to quit the law and to do the thing that is necessary for my students. I thought I would serve them best if I would stop being a lawyer and would begin to do what I have been doing now in the last 15 years. And then I began to write. I, I had education in philosophy, 
anthropology, not only law. So it was quite easy for me to come back to the good books, to find a good literature, you know, uh, Aristotelian ethics, um, and rediscover the concept of virtue and apply this to, to leadership. So I wrote that first book. I wrote that first book, Virtuous Leadership, in 2007. It was published in New York. Now it's 12 years ago. And after I wrote three or four other books, Created for Greatness, which is about magnanimity and humility. The first book, Virtuous Leadership, is the whole system of leadership, how I see it. The second one, Created for Greatness, it's about uh, magnanimity and humility. You know, greatness and service as life ideals. Mm. The word magnanimity is an interesting one. It's not one that we use often, is it, Father Simon? Uh, well, I try to include it in homilies every once in a while. Somebody said that they would give me five bucks every time I use the word <laughs> magnanimity in a homily. But uh, no, it, it, it is uh, unique for sure. I think of uh, this, this call to, to greatness, to, to, to something big and beyond. Yeah. And, and, and so how about you help us understand, because I know for some people listening, Alex, uh, the word mag- magnanimity might be a new one. Magnanimous is not, a, is not usually used in, in common parlance. Uh, help me understand. How do you understand and define that term? With first style, we have to pronounce it well. Well, I know I'm not an American, I'm not an English speaker, but I've noticed that for many people, at least in the United States, it's not easy to pronounce. Mm. People say magnanimity. I've seen people speaking about magnanimity, and I've seen even one guy speaking about magnetism. Magnetism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a different thing. <laughs> so the first thing, you're absolutely right. People are not used to this word, which is a beautiful word. It comes from the magna- magnanimitas. It's, uh, it's a word that was coined uh, in the year 44 before Jesus Christ by Cicero. Because Cicero wrote, uh, read uh, Aristotelian ethics and the, the works of the ancient Greeks. And the ancient, ancient Greeks had a beautiful word, which was uh, the mega, megalopsychia. Megalopsychia means big soul. Mm-hmm. And um, Cicero said, we don't have such a word in, in Latin. It's a, it's a disaster. So he coined a new word, uh, the word magnanimitas. It is from that word that we have the English magnanimity, mm-hmm. right? So it's a very recent word. It's a, it's a direct translation from the ancient Greeks. Yeah, we were asking you about what does it really mean. Well, it has meant different things in history, of course. But for Aristotle, um, a magnanimous man is a man who considers himself worthy of great things. So in Aristotle, there is a vision of worthiness and greatness. So uh, for him, Magnanimity, it is the virtue of great people. It is the virtue of people that have a, a great vision of themselves. Uh, it's not pride. It's a vision, I think, about uh, the true dignity of the human person. Although he was not a Christian, Aristotle had a kind of uh, intuition about the greatness of the human spirit. And that's why for him, a magnanimous person was a person who considers really himself worthy of great things. And it's very interesting because as Christians, as Christians, when we think about that, the magnanimous man is a man who, is, who considers himself worthy of great things. We, Christians, knowing that we are children of God, by definition, <laughs> we, are, we are in a better position to practice magnanimity than other people because there is, no, there is nothing greater than that. 
to, to, to consider yourself a son of God and knowing that you are a son of God, then you can dream God's dreams. Mm. Then you cannot, be, you cannot live without magnanimity if you're a Christian. It's impossible because it means that you don't understand who you are. Like Christians are children of God, which means that they have to dream God's dreams. They have to have the desire for that greatness, which is the greatness of God. And if they don't have this, it's hard to be called a Christian. So at the end of the day, magnanimity, although it was not invented by Christians, it's a human virtue. Uh, it is, uh, in the hand of Christians, it's, uh, it's a diamond. Mm. I'm just thinking of uh, the, this famous quote from Pope Benedict XVI. Um, and and uh, this is a bit of a paraphrase, but it's something to the effect of, uh, do not settle for comfort. The world will, will offer you comfort. You were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. And I think that's so close to even the title of this book that you wrote on, on the subject. Yeah, he even said you were created for greatness. You were created for greatness. Made, because made is not very clear. But created means that God has really has made you out of nothing. Mm. You are, uh, he gave you this greatness. So, you know, the magnanimity we're speaking about it's first of all, it's a vision of yourself, it's a vision of your personal dignity, and it is also the, it is the virtue of dreamers who transform their dreams into action. So, magnanimity is not just about dreams, it's not just about contemplation, it is the virtue of people that are both philosophers and doers at the same time. That is why it's not an easy virtue, mm. you know. Uh, in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas took the concept of Aristotle and he added a word. Aristotle was used to say that the magnanimous man is a man who considers himself worthy of great things. Then Thomas of Aquinas took this sentence and he added the word doing. He said, a magnanimous person is a person who considers himself worthy of doing great things. Mm. You know, Thomas is, a, Thomas is not a He's a Roman, and he's from, he's from the West. So he needs action. He needs uh, practice. He needs movements. So he's, um, he's, a contemplative, he's a contemplative person, but at the same time, he's a man of action. So his vision is that magnanimity is not just a, a virtue for contemplative souls. Uh, it's a virtue also for people who want to transform those dreams into missions and into actions. So magnanimity is the virtue of people who are philosophers, and at the same time, doers. So you're magnanimous not because you dream. You're magnanimous because you transform your dreams into missions, that is, into action. Many people are dreamers, but they are not magnanimous. They are dreaming for themselves, mm. dreaming in order to enjoy the dream. Mm. And that's, uh, that's a lack of self-control, self-mastery, you know. But when you dream in order to put the dream into effect immediately, then you are magnanimous. So one of the things you, you, you write about, Alex, is, is uh, magnanimity, but also humility. And, and I, I think there's, there's got to be, uh, help me understand how, how you understand these two, um, these two heart virtues. How do they play together? How do they go hand in hand? Well, it's, uh, it's quite simple. Uh, if you're magnanimous, you will acknowledge your personal talents because you build greatness with talents. So a magnanimous person is aware of his talents. And this is gratitude. This is not pride. This is gratitude toward God, towards God who gave him these talents. You're okay with that. But then the humility side is to, to remember that those talents are not yours. They're a gift. 
They've been given to you by God. So you have to acknowledge your talents. If not, you're not magnanimous. You're the small-minded, the small-hearted, the small-souled. You are pusillanimous. But if you, if you understand and knowledge your talents, but at the same time you understand where those talents come from, and you thank God for those talents he has given you, then you're humble. Because humility is the habit of living in the truth. Mm. So to be aware of your talents, to be aware of your talents, it's, it's the truth. And, but the truth is also to be aware that those talents come from God. If you think that those talents come from yourself, you live in lie, then it's not humility. So many people think they are magnanimous because they do big things, they do great things. But at the end of the day, they don't understand where those talents come from. And they build, the, they build a tower of magnanimity without the foundation of humility, which is the truth about where those talents come from. And then everything collapses. Hmm. You, cannot, you have to have the two virtues together. If you speak two hours of magnanimity, you have to speak two hours of humility. And if you speak two hours of humility, you have to speak two hours of magnanimity. If not, you're not a serious guy. You're lying to your public. These are, these are, we say in philosophy, that magnanimity and humility are the two different aspects of the same virtue. Mm. So you cannot separate them from one another. If not, you, you will fall into the, ver the vice of pride, the vice of megalomania, or the vice of false modesty, false humility, pusillanimity. You have to have, the, you have, to have both. If not, you, you collapse. Right. Think that you're a good man because you you practice humility, but in the end of the day, it's not humility; it's false humility. It is pusillanimity, small-mindedness, and that's a vice. It's not a virtue. You say people ask you, "Who are you?" and you answer, "I am a sinner." Well, I will tell you. I know you're a sinner. No, no need to tell me this. <laughs> but it's not a definition of what you are. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. And I like you to hear. I like to hear this from you, because this is the truth about who you are. And a, a person who doesn't know that truth knows nothing about himself. Nothing. You know, it's like someone who doesn't know that he has been created by God. He thinks he's a god. He thinks there is no nature. That he, he himself produces, re-engenders himself all the time, reinvent himself, as we say in English. I don't like those words. You don't reinvent yourself. You just have to discover who you are, but you cannot reinvent yourself. You're not a god. You cannot regenerate yourself. So these people lack the basic humility of understanding that they are created beings. And they are proud because they consider themselves as gods. But among Christians, we, we see from time to time the opposite vice, which is not understanding that you have a dignity that is the dignity of the child of God that you are much more than a sinner. A sinner is not just, he's not definition of what you are. It's just something that happened to you on the, on the, on the path towards mm -hmm. heaven. But it is not what you are. You see, so we have um, people without God who have a temptation to con consider themselves gods. And that's a lie because this is pride and this has nothing to do with magnanimity. But Christians very often have a tendency to consider themselves just as sinners and they don't see the whole truth about themselves. They don't see their dignity. They don't see their talents. And then they lack the virtue of magnanimity. They fall into pusillanimity. So you have people who fail quickly in pride and others who fail very quickly in pusillanimity because 
because there is no truth in their life. You know, there is, they have to be truth. If we want to be magnanimous and humble, we need the truth, the truth about ourselves. And that's why these virtues are beautiful, but they are very much challenged nowadays. Rob, you, um, you coach leaders all over the world. How do you see some of these concepts playing out in some of the things you do? Yeah, I think uh, the implications of what you're suggesting are tremendous because uh, some of the language that we would use, I think, is similar. Maybe you might disagree, but we, we talk so often about what it looks like to have your identity in Christ, that you're a, you're a son or a daughter. And you're, I, whatever you put your identity in is where you're going to get your worth and value as a person from. And so often we don't put our identity in who Christ says we are. We put our identity in other things, particularly for leaders. So often we put our identity or we base our self-worth on our success or lack of success. You know, and I just think of the implications of what, of what he's talking about. If we, can, if we can separate the results of what we're doing uh, from, from deriving our worth as people from that and find our worth in who we are as a son or a daughter in Christ, that frees us up to not concern, not not that we won't care about results, but not they're they're not this ultimate thing in our lives that a lot of times we make them to be. Mm. And I just think how much more freedom there would be uh, to lead in a way that's life giving and healthy. I think a lot of times our our stress and our challenges in leadership come come from the fact that we're struggling or we're going through seasons of difficulty or. You know, our, our, our views are, sh- are short-sighted. And as a, re- a result of that, our, our identity and ourselves kind of eats away at us in a way that it doesn't have to. And on the other extreme, we can go through seasons of where we're seeing positive results and become prideful as a result of that. And again, that's wh- whether you think less of yourself because you're not successful or more of yourself because you're more successful, both are wrong because both are rooted in who you are as a person and what you're producing apart from who the person of Jesus Christ is in your life. Alex, how do you understand the, the interplay of, of, of results and, and, and magnanimity and, and, and ability? Uh, you're speaking about now is the idea of success. Uh, in the end of the day, for philosophers, uh, deep people, the success uh, is, not a, is not something interesting. Why? Because uh, very, very often if you practice virtue, if you do the good, then you have no success in the modern world. Man, look at Thomas 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 More. He was beheaded. Joan of Arc. She was burned at the stake. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ was crucified. I mean, what kind of success do you mean here? There is no success at all. Um, <clears throat> I think the truth is that the practice of virtue brings you normal success in professional, family, and social life in what I would call normal circumstances. But we live in a world in which there is a very high level of ideological pressure. And uh, no, I, 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 I see that in the future, uh, virtuous leaders will probably end up in jail. And you, can speak, <laughs> you cannot really speak about a success. I remember one, one day I was giving a, a presentation at the uh, Naval uh, Naval Academy, the Naval War College in Rhode Island, in America, and one admiral stood up and asked me, Alex, what's going to happen to me if I practice what you're speaking about? And I told him very quickly, look, if you do really what I'm speaking about, especially the magnanimity thing, 
you will probably will be in jail in the next, next five years. And the, the guy was very happy about it because he's a soldier, he's a warrior, he's a sailor. So these people understand what's, what's going on. So here, uh, I think the virtue gives us a certain success in everyday life if everything goes according to the to life. But very often, many things happen that, uh, that are not normal, not usual. And then the only answer of virtue is death, you know? Mm. And uh, this has happened a lot. Look at the guy like Jérôme Lejeune, the one who discovered the, uh, the cause of sound down syndrome in 1958. He's the, he's the biggest uh, pro-lifer in the world, in fact, because he's the one who defended the vast the interest of the unborn child. This guy was the most preeminent geneticist in the world in the 1950s. He got uh, wonderful prizes uh, on genetics. But this guy, he, he knew he was going to lose everything because he was going to speak the truth about, about the child in the world of the mother. And he did it. He, did it. He, was, he was courageous enough to speak the scientific truth about it. And he knew he was going to lose. He was going to lose everything. He lost his money. He was crucified by the media. He was abandoned by his people. He, was, he ended up alone. And he died the day of Easter, Sunday of Easter, 1994. This guy is, is, uh, was a very, very virtuous person, but he knew that in the modern world, well, you have to make choices. And then success is not a word for Christians. You have to do the best of what you can, and virtue help you achieve a certain success. But I repeat, in the world in which we live, very often, uh, success means to be burned at the stake, to be beheaded, because we live in a world that is very much against Jesus Christ. Before. So it is, I think success is not really what people really, really want. There is a, a very famous Viktor Frankl, if you remember Viktor Frankl, mm. who was used to say that people don't want success, they want plenitude of life, <clears throat> fullness of life. And you can have fullness of life being beheaded and being burned at the stake, you see. But very often, often you have a success, a material success, but there is no fullness of life. So the good word, the only word that people really need to hear about, especially when they're very young, especially in the United States and in Canada, because we live in a success culture in this world, it's no good for young people. Mm. People need to hear much more about fullness of life. This is what you're called to. And they have to know fullness of life means to follow Jesus Christ wherever he is. And in the modern time, this could be in jail, on a stake, or being beheaded. You have to be faithful to your conscious, uh, conscious until the last moment. You, so that's why I'm telling you the, the success. Uh, and virtue brings a certain success. That's obvious because you have powers. Virtus means power. The power to make the right decisions. This is prudence. The power to stay the course. That is courage. The power to direct your emotions. That is self-mastery. The power to give people their due, which is the virtue of justice. These are powers. Virtus means power in Latin. So these are powers that give you the capacity to do things that other people cannot do. And this naturally brings success. But their success depends on many other things that have nothing to do with you. They are totally independent of you. So that's why in the education of young people, it's much more important, I repeat, to speak about fullness of life, plenitude of life. This is what you have to look for. 
And if you practice the virtue, you will get that. And maybe you will be beheaded. Maybe that's a possibility. You must not exclude it. You but know, it is important for you not to be beheaded. <laughs> so, so speaking of beheadings, <laughs> no, I was just thinking as you're speaking about virtues, and I think all the virtues follow the via media, right? The middle way. And you talk basically the extremes are where the vices lie, like pride or pusillanimity, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, so I was just thinking of a very concrete example uh, of this. Uh, a few weeks ago, we, we used a tool for evangelization called Alpha. Uh, you may be familiar with it, but part of it is the weekend away. And so uh, it's, a, it's a real focus on the Holy Spirit, and I happen to be the one giving the talk uh, for this, this final moment and, and prayer time. And so this, this example, it's a little bit less extreme than beheading or whatever, but... Uh, but I found myself, I've given this talk before, and I, I really love the Holy Spirit, and I found myself just pre- trying to prepare and pour myself into it. And, and as I was giving the talk, I literally felt nothing. Like there was no sense of warm fuzzies of God's presence, his nearness, that, that he's at work. And, you know, I, I felt dry, like dry, like toast, like I had nothing. And yet, um, I was, I could, I know that God's given me gifts for public speaking and, and, and a familiarity with the, with, with the person of the Holy Spirit that I just went for it and I could see in front of me the fruit of it. People were moved to tears. People seemed to be, uh, really moved during the prayer time afterwards. The feedback we got was very positive, but I remember driving home with Father Alex and just saying, you know, it was the weirdest thing. Like I I know objectively it was successful, if we want to call it that. It was, there were results. Um, it, was, it was magnanimous. It was a great event, a great moment. But as far as uh, me getting some of the, the goods from it or, or, or feeling great about it, it was, it was kind of humbling because I, I didn't experience anything from it. Anyways, just a very concrete but simple example of how I see what you're talking about, these two virtues um, playing together. There is a, it's interesting when you're speaking about uh, virtue being a gold medal. In fact, I don't use this expression with my students because it can mislead them very much. Okay. For instance, look, audacity is a virtue. A lack of audacity is lack of audacity. It's a vice. Uh, but on the other side, on the other side of the, virtue, you have what we call recklessness. Yes, but recklessness, it's not too much audacity. It just falls audacity. You follow me? Mm-hmm. So magnanimity, the lack of magnanimity is pusillanimity. Mm-hmm. But too much magnanimity, it is pride. But pride is not too much magnanimity. It just falls magnanimity. That's why you must not tell your students that it's a golden middle because they will not understand. What happens it is that if you lack a virtue, you have a vice. But there is a certain vice on the opposite side, which looks like a virtue, but it is not because it's a false virtue. It's, for instance, recklessness, false humility, pride. So a, a virtue, it's very hard to say it's a middle point. Virtue is better to say it's a, it's a summit, and you cannot go higher. It's hmm. a summit. Hmm. It's a certain amount. You cannot go higher than that. It's the 
it's it's a golden point, but it's not a golden center. And uh, the, the idea of center is no good. I mean, it can be. I know it comes from Aristotle, but it can be very, it can be misused, and people don't understand it. What happens is because with, because of the virtue of prudence, we understand that there is a kind of virtue that is in fact a vice if we don't if we don't pay attention to this. I mean, a false humility. It's a vice. So there is a. I, this is just as an, an advice I give you. It is, uh, especially with young people, not to explain the virtues in terms of uh, golden center. Because mm. it is not a summit. Help me, help me understand the connection between uh, the, the Christian supernatural virtues of, of faith and, and hope and charity. And how, what's the connection between those virtues and leadership? Well, there is a very, very traditional connection. We heard about this uh, since we were very young. It is that grace builds up on nature, which means that the supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity, if they don't find strong human nature in the human virtues, then they have no meaning. They cannot work. You know? So someone that does not practice the human virtues of courage, of generosity, of magnanimity, humility, self-mastery, the grace of God cannot transform him because the grace needs nature which means that we have to make a certain effort to practice the human virtues. And then even if we pray a lot, if we receive the sacraments, but if we do nothing in terms of building uh, our, our humanity, our human virtues, nothing will happen in our spiritual life. I and mean, then as Christians, we collapse, you know? Jesus Christ was a perfect man and a perfect God. So if we don't learn how to imitate his human virtues, as Christians, we will collapse. That's obvious. And then to be Christian is not to overcome the man. That's not that. To be Christian is to be first a man. And after a Christian, which means a man that practices also the supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity. So this is the first thing I need to be said to people is that even if you pray a lot, it's not enough. You have to practice the human virtues. You have to be a human being like Jesus Christ. When you read the gospel, you have to be amazed by the way Jesus practices the human virtues, prudence, justice, self-mastery, courage, audacity, magnanimity, humility. Christ practices all the human virtues at the top level. Nobody can practice them in a better way. So he's a man, he's a man maximum of what we can expect from a man. So this is the first thing. The second thing we need to say is that the practice of Christian life, I mean, if we, the virtues, the supernatural virtues that we receive in prayer and in the sacraments, these virtues that are supernatural, they act on our human virtues. They purify them. They elevate them. They divinize them. They make them better and stronger. So um, there is an, a complete interaction, you know. The human virtues are the foundation without which the supernatural virtues cannot build upon. And the, the, natural, the supernatural virtues helps the uh, natural virtues to develop quicker and stronger. So Christians need to think all the time of both. They need once to build all the time their human virtues. And for this, they need to make an examination of conscience every day about how they practice the human virtues. And they, read, they need to read a lot about human virtues. They need to read a lot about virtuous leadership, for instance. And at the same time, they need to, they need to look for God's grace where it is, in prayer and in the sacraments. That's it. So a Christian is he does the, he does the, he has to do the two things. He cannot just do one. Of course, that would be that wouldn't be Christianity to do just the one thing. 
Alex, you're you're really challenging probably some people's paradigm in this. And so, and and you mentioned earlier how in Canada and the United States, we tend to be driven towards the idea of success. So for those of us that are listening to you, and if we're honest, we're we're fairly driven. Like we think a lot about the results that we want to accomplish. Uh, you know, whether that's growing our church or growing our platform or whatever type of growth or results or success we're sort of thinking through. What would be your advice to that person? Should they stop caring about results? Should they stop thinking about results? Or what would what would how would you counsel that person that's sitting there going, okay, yeah, uh, I, I have to be honest. I'm 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 doing what you're suggesting I shouldn't do. And so, what's my next step? Should I rethink how I view my life? Should I prioritize I, things differently? I got it. Well, no, because the people that are oriented to success are very um, very important people. It means they are practical minds. They want things to be done. You know, they're, they're living a culture where things has to be done. And I like this. I think it's very attractive. Nobody can say it's wrong. It's bad. It's obviously very, very good. So this idea of I want success because I want, I don't want to work in vain. I want things to be done. I want to achieve results. I think this is very positive. And this is also the way the business is moving forward. And the business can be a great stuff for humanity, you know, without Without business, it's very hard to understand how we would, we would leave. So this is a very good thing. But I would tell these people, you need to strengthen the contemplative side of your life. If not, you will collapse as a human being. You know, we have different temperaments. You have people that are very choleric by nature. So choleric people are action-oriented. They want to set goals, and they want to achieve those goals. We call this cholerics. There are many people like this on Earth. and. In politics, in business, you have a lot of those guys. And they're very good. They are born managers. And we need them. So we must not tell them we don't need you. Of course we need you. <laughs> because things have to be done. And results have to be achieved. If not, if not why, 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 why do we exist? So, But these people need to think about their interior life. They, don't, they need not to fall into workaholism. They need to, um, to understand better the contemplative aspect of life. You know? They need, for instance, to practice more the virtue of humility, which is to think more about others, to think if they are really serving the others and not just achieving results. But very often, those choleric people, they achieve results, but at the end of the day, we look at their teams, and the team is full of dead bodies because he has been using <laughs> people to achieve the results. You know, uh, that's why it, 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 uh, choleric people don't understand that people are more important than banks. For them, the result is more important than the thing. It's more important than the people. So if those people practice the virtue of humility, they can be magnificent people. They will become magnificent persons because they have the, the energy of choirism in order to achieve a goal. And in the process of achieving that goal, because they have been developing the virtue of humility, they will be servant of the people that are achieving that goal. So these are magnificent people. And... Also in, in Canada and in the United States, you meet also a lot of those people. And uh, the success question, I think, is another thing. It's, a, it's normal for a, a choleric person to have a desire for success because he's, biologically he's, he tends toward this. He needs this. He needs to see the results. You, you follow me? But for someone that has a melancholic temperament, the challenge would be very different. You know, melancholic people are creative people. They are not directed, to, directed towards action. They are directed towards ideas, beauty, perfection. They are very creative people, but they have a tendency, tendency to be self-absorbed 
you need to be absorbed by their thoughts, absorbed by their sentiments, by their feelings, by their emotions. So they are, they are, there is a deep life inside, but the problem is that they don't share that with others and they have to serve the others with that. So they have to get outside themselves. They have to overcome this self-absorption and they do this through the virtue of audacity, boldness. Mm-hmm. So when you have melancholic people, you know you have someone that is very rich inside, but this richness that is inside can destroy him if he doesn't share that with others. And in order to do that, he has to practice the virtue of boldness. He has to get outside himself in order to become a servant of the others. So you see, each temperament is challenged by a very specific virtue. That's a very important, that's the topic of my last book, From Temperament to Character, that makes the science of leadership very practical. Because each, each one of us here, we are very different people. There are four basic temperaments. And then the life, the in, inside life of each temperament is different. So we need to understand what are, what is each temperament and what is the virtue that challenges each one of us, you see? So you were speaking about, about success. That's typical of people that have a choleric, a choleric temperament. They want success because they want to achieve material goals. And you have to tell them that's good, that's very, very good, but that's not enough. You have to take care of your spiritual life. You have to take care of the contemplative aspect of it. You got it? Mm-hmm. So if we want to know about sanguine and phlegmatic, then we've got to read the book. <laughs> yeah, if you read the book, uh, I can't tell you now very quickly what <laughs> this is about. But the sanguine people, it's very simple. The sanguine people are very good in communication. Maybe many of you here are sanguine people. Very good in communication, being good, very good in inter- interacting with people. You live in the present, you know how to make jokes, you know how to make people happy, and you know to you want the others to make you happy. But the problem that many of you have with sanguine people is that they live in the present. There is no future for them. So they are very unstable. They have difficulty to practice the virtue of endurance. They are very good now, 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 but tomorrow they forget what they did yesterday, and they have a difficulty to end to to put the last stones to each of their projects. So they look a little bit superficial. That's it. It's a, they are very pleasant people. They are directed towards people, you know. The choleric, it's action. The melancholic, it's idea. The, the, um, the sanguine people, it's people. You need people. If you have no people around, you die. You need to share all the time your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your joy with the others. What's the problem with this temperament? We've seen the qualities of that temperament. It's communication, communio. You're very communi- Yeah, you're a good communicator. But the problem is stability. Endurance, stability, the incapacity very often to stay the course and to put the last stone to, uh, to each of your projects. Mm. And then you have the phlegmatic people. The phlegmatic people are very rational people. Uh, they're very, they look at life from a scientific angle all the time. So they are depassionate. They are very, very, very nice, very interesting uh, persons. Their problem is going to be magnanimity because they don't dream. They don't like to dream because the dream is something that is not scientific. It's something that is absolutely unscientific. So in order to develop this, they have to practice the virtue of magnanimity. They will be challenged by the virtue of magnanimity. And if they do this, they will become incredible people. And they, you have leaders everywhere in the world. They have, you have leaders with the four temperaments. But the four temperaments are, uh, show, shows one thing. Leadership is not just a question of cholerism. Many cholerics have been leaders, many have not been leaders. But if you look at the history of humanity, you see that 
You have had great leaders among the monopoly. Just think about Martin Luther King. You have great leaders about the phlegmatics. Just think about Professor Jérôme Lejeune I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, just think about Darwin Smith, who was uh, CEO of Kimberly Clark in the 1970s. He was absolutely phlegmatic, but he was the greatest dreamer in the history of humanity, the history of America after the Second World War in the sphere of business. And you have had uh, great, uh, great people in politics being uh, sanguine. Just remember uh, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was a, was a sanguine, he was an actor, he was a man of communication. We called him the great communicator, but that man was a man of character. He was a man of character because he built endurance, he built stability in his life. So nobody can say, no one can say, I have this temperament, I am the product of my temperament. That's not right. You are not only your temperament, you are also your character. And each temperament, for each temperament, there is a virtue that has to be, first of all, practiced in order to find balance in your life and to become a great leader. Mm. You see, so we are not all, we are not challenged, each one of us, by the same virtues in terms of virtuous leadership. Alex, one of the things uh, that we challenge um, pastors and priests in our network parishes that we work with, uh, one of the things we challenge them to do is to, is to raise up leaders, to, to, to create leadership pipelines, to find leaders and, and, and to build into them. One of the things you write about are, is that leaders aren't born, but that they're, they're made. Uh, could you speak a little bit about how, how this works together? Yeah, look, it's, uh, leaders are not born. Managers are born. The cleric is born a manager because since he's very young, biologically, he's used to set goals and to achieve those goals. And he cannot live without that. We say managers are born, entrepreneurs are born, but leadership is a moral activity. It has to do with building character. So leadership is, leaders are not born, they're made. And, but at the same time, it's important to focus on the point that each one of us has to become a leader. Because if leadership is about virtues, if leadership is about greatness and service, then each one of us has to be a leader. But then people ask me, how can you be a leader? Where will be the, if everyone is a leader, where will be the followers? And the, the answer is extremely simple. Each one of us has to be both a leader and a follower. You cannot be a leader if you're not a follower. You cannot be a follower if you, if you don't know what leading is about. That's the question. So each one of us, we are followers and we are leaders. We are sheep and pastors at the same time. This is our, our vocation as Christian also. Well, thank you so much, Alex. I, I know our time flew by today. And so I, I know I'm left with, with a desire to learn more. So if, if people want to learn more about uh, the work that you've done, uh, you've written several books, uh, including Virtuous Leadership, Created for Greatness, From Temperament to Character, as well as your, your biography, My Russian Way. And if you want to learn more about the, uh, the Leadership Institute, uh, you can check out uh, Alexander's work at HV li.org hvli.org notes and, and such will be in, in the show notes from today but thank you so much alex it was such a pleasure to have you with us thank you thank you i was honored and i had a good time Thanks a lot. Bye. God bless. Thank you again. And thank you for joining us on this podcast, those of you out there who were listening and along for the ride. Uh, do check out Alex's uh, books and website for more information. And if you want more information about how we coach into leaders globally, check out the Divine Renovation Network. It's there to, to help equip you as you step into your leadership more fully. Thank you and God bless. God bless.